Du lyssnar till dagens arena.se's podcast Arenaklubben. Fördjupande samtal om aktuell politik. Hej och välkommen till ett nytt avsnitt av Arenaklubben. Jag heter Erik Sundström. Hittills har vi i regel haft panelsamtal om svensk politik i Arenaklubben men vi har även gjort en avstickare då vi analyserade det italienska valet med några särskilt inbjudna gäster. Och ni lyssnare som brukar höra av er via dagensarena.se eller med hashtaggen Arenaklubben i sociala medier verkar gilla just blandningen av vår panel med internationella utblickar. En amerikansk vän till mig som även har jobbat en del med arenagruppen, Mr. Jim Arcadis i Washington DC, har nyligen skrivit en intressant artikel för tidskriften The Atlantic. I USA så är det ju fortsatt rörigt i det republikanska partiet efter Mitt Romneys förlust mot Barack Obama hösten 2012. Men Jim menar att det är just nu som demokraterna borde se över både sin politik och sin organisation i syfte att stärka positionen jämt emot republikanerna ytterligare. Så vad gör vi då i Arena-klubben? Jo, vi ringer naturligtvis upp Jim och ber honom presentera det här fempunktsprogrammet från The Atlantic som ni självfallet vill veta mer om. Så Jim är på tråden och ska pedagogiskt få förklara sina förslag. Jim Arcadis, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to this discussion and your five bullet points, but we got to take it from the beginning. And I need to ask you, first of all, why did you write this uh, article for The Atlantic? Well, um, over the course of the past week, uh, at the beginning of last week, the Republican Party issued this uh, study that they're calling the Growth and Opportunity Project. And Rince Priebus, who's the chairman of the Republican National Committee, basically in charge of the mechanics of the Republican Party, um, uh, called this report an autopsy of what went wrong, like a post postmortem evaluation of what went wrong with the Republican party following the 2012 election. And just, just to review for your listeners very quickly, obviously Barack Obama won the presidency, but, uh, that, that was a little bit of a shock to the Republican party, many of whom had expected, uh, Mitt Romney to win, of course. Uh, but also some of the other, uh, races in the Senate and the house, uh, the Senate in particular was a bit of a shocking win for the Democrats. Uh, there were a lot of uh, seats that were uh, going to be contested and uh, many of them trended towards the Republican candidate, but the Republicans made many missteps, especially on the Senate side. Uh, and so they lost those seats. Uh, they, uh, the Republican party contain, uh, retains control of the house of representatives, mm-hmm. uh, but lost a few seats. So, and, and the soul surgeon has been immense on the Republican side, right? Yeah. And so this party, uh, this study was sort of what went wrong? Why did it go wrong? And some of the conclusions, uh, are, are fascinating. And it's really interesting to hear high ranking Republican party officials admit in public that they're, that many American voters perceive them as scary and as the party of stuffy old white men. Uh, and, and so it's just really, it's really interesting to see the Republican party go through this, uh, public examination of what went wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so perceptions are one thing, but then they're also the mechanics of the party. And so I wrote I, the article that I wrote for the Atlantic was kind of based on this idea. I thought, well, Democrats are are kind of looking at one another and saying, "Aha, this is great! You know, isn't it isn't it wonderful? We finally see the Republican Party self destruct and kind of have this you know interesting civil war." And it just occurred to me, you know, hold on here. Uh, if you're a Democrat or a progressive in the United States, 
everything is not perfect on our side. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to, to inject my voice into the conversation and say, you know, let's not get complacent. Let's not think that everything is perfect on our side just because we want. Mm -hmm. And your first point uh, when I read the article was about the intellectual firepower. What do you mean by that? Um, I'm, I'm primarily talking about a think tank, the think tank community, uh, and and that's a community that I've been involved in uh, for six or seven years at this point in the U.S. Um, and and we have a lot of civil society groups that are engaged in advocacy and and policy making and uh, sort of thought leadership. Some of which are very connected to the party, the Democratic Party. Some of which are not, um, but. The fact remains that, you know, of course, we're obsessed in the United States with, with raising money and, and money in politics. But these advocacy groups and think tanks are nonprofit organizations that are ideologically progressive if they're not officially connected to the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. But they write things and hold seminars and put out papers and have discussions that, that help party leaders, senators, congressmen and women, um, you know, other other leading figures within the Democratic Party sort of refresh their ideas and, and provide new intellectual material for how they should think about policy. And, and when it comes, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, oh, and I was just going to say also to give full disclosure, you're linked to one of these uh, think tanks, yes. right? One, one of, yeah, one of the, the groups I mentioned is called the Progressive Policy Institute, uh, where I'm a senior fellow. Um, but the idea here is that on the right, uh, there's... Uh, They've had established think tanks going back to the early 1970s. This has been a slightly newer phenomenon on the left, maybe only going back until really the, the late 80s or early 90s. But um, the major think tanks on the right, the Heritage Foundation, the American Enterprise Institute, the Cato Institute, these are groups that put out papers that have wonderful connections to Republican senators and congressmen and, 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 and the White House when the Republicans hold the White House. And they provide these new, fresh ideas also about how uh, both about how they, they message policy issues, um, but also about how they think about things on the left. Uh, the left think tanks are much younger and have much smaller budgets. Mm -hmm. uh, and so on the right, they have a lead of about $100 million per year when you combine the major think tanks on the right and compare them with the major think tanks on the left. And that's why in the U.S. so many Republican or so many issues, the Republicans get out in public and define the terms of the debate, even if they're not winning uh, winning elections, they're out there quickly and they say, for example, take the budget. Uh, they've had many of their members come out and define the terms of the debate as on the budget, we need to cut the deficit quickly. That That is mm -hmm. the, the starting point for debate in American politics. So, so in, in, in conclusion, they still frame the debate in a good way and they are ahead by an enormous amount of money. You said a uh, hundred million dollars, right, in the battle of ideas. Yeah, and, yeah. and if that's want to catch up, they have to figure out ways to increase their funding and, and just 
really reinforce intellectual architecture on their side. Yeah, perfect. We move on to to your second point, and uh, when introducing that, you you wrote in the article, the Democratic Party must avoid an impending woman problem, not to mention a Latino problem, a gay problem, and a youth problem. And I thought that the support in these mentioned groups uh, is is an asset for Democrats, not a problem. What do you mean when you bring that up in the article? Well, today it's an asset. My fear is that the Democratic Party treats all of these groups as building blocks of their coalition. Give me examples. uh, Well, it's nice to have women voters, right? But they exploit women voters and they sort of push their buttons on issues like birth control and abortion and say, oh, the scary Republicans want to take these things away. Like, that's fine. And that helps motivate women voters to support them and go to the polls. But it's time to stop treating all of these groups like uh, building blocks of the coalition that you care about only when the election rolls around and start integrating them as equal members of the party who don't have to, don't need special consideration, but because they're brought into everything that the party does, uh, they feel like fully integrated partners. And one of the examples I use, particularly for women, is this idea that, uh, you know, at for the Democratic National uh, Convention, they don't even provide child care for women delegates. And so that discourages women from coming to the convention or from running to become delegates. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's nice to talk about birth control and things like that from a political perspective, but you can't send consistent negative messages to women's groups that say, we care about you when it comes to election day, but we're not ready to accommodate you when it comes to the very basic things we do as a party. So women are not going to probably abandon the Democratic Party in the next election, but the Democratic Party has to stop sending these mixed or or slightly negative uh, messages to leading women's groups because that that will filter down from from the leaders of individual women's groups down to their membership who will then talk to you know uh, housewives and mothers and and working women who will then begin to say huh maybe the Democratic Party only treats us like like voters who who they need to show up at the polls maybe it would be better if we actually started to to work as equal partners within the party over the long term. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, also to make a little bit of a Swedish comment here, I also think you need better parental leave. So you look at taking care of the kids as a responsibility for both the woman and the man. And and that will be a journey, I I know, in American uh, society. But but that's the way we would look uh, at it over here. But I would like to just add quickly to this this point, your second point that you make about uh, younger uh, uh, people in the party, because I know you've been involved in, in promoting that. What's your point? about the youth problem? Uh, This is something that Europe actually probably does significantly better than than in the United States and particularly within the Democratic Party. Uh, The youth vote was a a crucial part of the Obama coalition and young voters are not necessarily going to be going to go anywhere. I mean, some research shows that once you vote for the same party twice as, as a young voter, you're pretty much locked in for the rest of your life. But it's a question of enthusiasm and leadership development. So it's great that the Democratic Party has a lot of young voters. Fantastic. But they need to capitalize on that and and take those young voters and turn them into leaders. And that demands uh, significant investments in time and money 
uh, of, of starting organizations and helping the small organizations on the democratic side that exist to really grow and be able to train the next generation of progressive leadership in the in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so, so just to conclude, both when it comes to representation and policy, you need not just to talk the talk, but to walk the walk uh, as well, as you say, in the U.S. Moving on to your third point, you argue that Democrats need to expand their coalition, particularly among faith voters and lower income whites. How can that be achieved? Uh, it's very tough. Faith-based uh, faith faith voters uh, are sort of the mainstay of the Christian coalition on the right. Voting for um, the Republicans. Yeah, who vote pretty constantly for the Republicans. But uh, some research that I've done shows that uh, particularly Catholic voters are more open to receive progressive faith-based uh, messages today than perhaps ever before in recent history. And so when I talk about that, that that's more the idea that that the, the, the American government should be focused on uh, social justice issues, uh, lower programs for lower income individuals who need the social safety net, and appeal to religious voters not just on social issues of abortion and marriage and all the other things that we love to talk about, but the Democratic Party should make a real effort to address faith-based voters on on social justice issues because there the democrats have something to say that the republican party doesn't talk about very often um and on lower income whites this is you know i say in the article that it's it's absolutely maddening for uh the lower income middle class whites and the democratic party loves to talk about how they take care of the middle class that's great but too many lower income white voters in poorer and more rural areas in the United States vote Republican more often because they're attracted to the Republican position on uh, social issues. They're more conservative voters. And so combining this social justice message uh, with taking care of, of the middle class and making sure that we have an equal society is one that I hope that would appeal to both of those groups. Mm -hmm. And we might add also that this is, I would argue, one of the more complex issues in American politics, because you can also argue that the Republican Party has made a good good way of making inroads in these groups, also using a little bit of, of xenophobia and kind of dividing the white middle class against other ethnic groups and using some kind of mix mixture of xenophobia and economic populism to divide lower income whites, you can argue. Is that correct, you think? Yeah, I mean, this is classic sort of divisive politics. Uh, the, the Republican Party does a very, a very good job of exploiting uh, social issues to attract voters to their side. And, and quite honestly, having particularly lower income whites vote against their own uh, economic issues. You know, the lower income mm -hmm. whites, for example, would benefit from Obamacare and expanding health care coverage and, and, and decreasing the cost of health care over the long term. But they are more attracted to the Republican Party because they're, uh, they, these voters are more conservative socially. And that so, social issues often come out on top amongst those voters. Mm -hmm. 
And I know also that you have met the the Swedish uh, author uh, Martin Gellin, who's been uh, working a little bit with us uh, at the Arena Group, and yep. he he wrote a wonderful book about U.S. politics in Swedish, which we can put a link uh, to uh, next to this podcast, where he actually goes to West Virginia and explains uh, this dimension of American uh, politics very well. We will move on to to your fourth point, and that has to do with the modern and groundbreaking uh, breaking political campaign that Obama ran. It was good in 2008 and some people might say excellent in 2012, combining digital politics with an impressive ground organization. But you write the party has to push digital and organizing innovations down ballot. What's your point here? Uh, in America, this is very important for uh, an American political context, particularly the idea that uh, the districts for Congress Uh, have been gerrymandered, uh, and and by gerrymandering I mean basically redrawn so that they create more safe seats mm-hmm. for and for the party that governs the state can make it for the party more Republican the or more Democratic depending on on who's who's uh, in the governor's mansion and in the in the state local politic state senate right yeah state yeah the state legislature so yeah. take like my home state of Ohio for example. There's a Republican governor. The Republicans control the state legislature, which is like the state parliament. Um, and so they basically uh, control the committees that draw the lines within the state of Ohio for to create the Congress seat, to, mm-hmm. to create uh, seats, uh, the districts for uh, Congress. Volkets are in Swedish. Yeah. Yeah. So what that means is at the end of the day, Republicans control the state, so they draw the lines for each of the districts so that they create as many safe seats as possible for Republicans within the state of Ohio, right? Mm -hmm. So the Obama campaign was wonderful in terms of its uh, uh, organizing innovations and how they adopted technology to target voters and have uh, good digital organizing strategies. But the people who ran the presidential campaign need to take those Uh, innovations and make sure that they had that they are pushed down ballot to you know people running for dog catcher from Alliance <laughs> Ohio you know the smallest possible race because if we are going to take back Congress as a Dem- as the Democratic Party what we need to do first and foremost is control and, and have the best possible operations for those local elections for the state parliament for the state legislature to ensure that Democratic majorities, Uh, are elected in the state of Ohio, so we can have a more fair uh, redrawing of the lines for Congress. And that only happens once every 10 years. So the time is now, because the next time the the lines for Congress, uh, the congressional races will be redrawn is in 2020. So it's time to start trying to take back the individual state legislatures now. and, and, And that can happen by really adopting Uh, some of the organizing and digital analysis techniques that were used so effectively by the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a dual point. Uh, first of all, you ran an excellent campaign on a national level. Now you need to have it also in the local parts yep. of, of the Democratic Party. Of course, it's a it's a federal system. You have one Democratic Party in each state, and they need to be up to date with these um, 
tools but secondly also in order to pass policy in the u.s you need to be in the state legislature that we talked about and you also need to con uh, control both uh, chambers uh, on the hill in the both the senate and house of representatives that is and the democrats currently only uh, have control of the senate right Correct. Good. Then we're, we're walking through your article to, to your fifth point. And there you talk about a possible fight between the OFA and the DNC. So start briefly uh, by explaining those acronyms before giving us the details about what seems to be an impending fist fight. Sure. Yeah, th this is the, uh, you know, the, the, the intra-party potential uh, battle. The Democratic National Com uh, Committee is the DNC, and that's that's the organ that's the organ that basically runs the party. It's an umbrella organization of yeah, all the state Democratic parties. Yeah, it's an umbrella organization based out of Washington D.C. that that does a lot of the fundraising, that works with the presidential campaigns, that that helps uh, push ideas and operatives uh, down to important races throughout the country, um, and so that's it's it's the organizing committee for the entire party. OFA now stands for Organizing for Action. It is basically the leaders of the Obama campaign. The, its chairman is Jim Messina, who is the Obama campaign's uh, uh, manager. And I think a lot of listeners actually got an email from him <laughs> historically, because <laughs> yeah, a lot of listeners, I think, would have subscribed to emails from the Obama campaign. So this is, this is a very uh, important and powerful organization that is just getting up and started. But it's, it's run by people who have a direct line to the White House who uh, are going to advocate and, and conduct advocacy operations to help pass the uh, Obama agenda in the second term, right? So, but the, there are a lot of questions because we don't know what OFA, Organizing for America, is a very young organization. It's only a couple months old. And we don't know where they're going, where they're going or what they're doing or what their real aims are. And so will they be a competitor to the DNC? Will they work in cooperation with the DNC? Uh, we just don't know yet. And so I, I suggest that, that the leaders of those organizations need to come to an agreement and then quite crucially need to make that agreement public. Because operatives who are running these down-ballot races, whether it's for Congress in a small seat in the middle of a, a, the state of Missouri or something, or you know the, the dog catcher race or anything, <laughs> need to know which party mechanism they should make a phone call to to solve one particular problem. Mm -hmm. and, and that's not clear right now. So you basically have two, a little bit of a rival situation because the OFA has been so successful running the presidential campaign and obviously they have a lot of email addresses and a lot of digital infrastructure uh, right now. So And the DNC wonders a little bit what, what their situation is going to be. Yep, absolutely. And, yep. and what's your take on the, will they sort it out? Oh, gosh, the, you know, we'll, we'll, we will see by the election in 2014. Because uh, OFA is supposed to help advocate for uh, the, the president's agenda, for Obama's agenda. Mm -hmm. But by the time 2014 runs around, I bet the DNC comes and starts knocking on uh, OFA's doors and says, hey, we need some help in this race and that race and this race. You know, can you supply people to knock on doors, make phone calls for us? You know, and, can we, and can we please have all the millions of email addresses and, and data points on voters that, that you collected in Chicago? 
Sure. Yeah, absolutely. The DNC has plenty of email addresses and that sort of thing. But yeah, cooperation along those lines can wouldn't wouldn't hurt the DNC okay. or the, the the congressional campaign committee or the Senate campaign committee. Thank you, Jim. But but before letting you go, I would just like to conclude by asking you, given your experience now, we, we gave a little bit of your bio, bio before you live in Washington, D.C. You've been working with this think tank, the Progressive Policy uh, Institute. You've been involved in, in several political campaigns. If you And you've also been both to Sweden and, and, to, into, and to Europe quite a lot. When you look at progressives in Europe, both parties and trade unions, what, what's the experience and the lessons that we can draw from, from the campaign in the US and what can we learn more about uh, from your perspective? Um, I, I'd probably say the most important things are on the digital uh, analysis and the organizing the get out the vote efforts. The grassroots um, organizing. Yeah, yeah, because the, the, the Obama campaign just did it both so well, and they're starting to share those ideas uh, with with the Democratic Party. And so, if you're a European progressive or in a trade union, uh, I would really look to learn the lessons uh, from American politics in terms of how do we do the best data analysis possible? How do we find our voters? And I understand that there are, of course, legal and cultural differences that means that not everything that you do in the U.S. is automatically uh, applicable to a European context, but understanding how they can be better organized, understanding how they can better build uh, their databases, how they better contact their supporters, how they how they can motivate their supporters better, and translate that into uh, a bigger army of volunteers that has a concrete plan to motivate their supporters when there are important issues up for debate or there are elections coming up uh, or to define the terms of the debate. All of those are where the United States has really made some some wonderful innovations and and Europe can do a little bit of catching up. Thank you very much for, for sharing your experiences. I would also like to underline that from my perspective, especially the last two election cycles has not only been about negative campaigning and PR in the US. It's also been about actually involving loads and loads of people, especially on the progressive side in politics again, and that certainly progressives in Europe can learn from. So thank you, Jim, for, for participating in Arena Clubben. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, and maybe we'll be in touch again and talk about other current American uh, political uh, issues. Sure. Sounds good to me. Good. Uh, Tack så mycket Jim alltså och du har ju lyssnat på Arenaklubben som idag var en intervju med en amerikansk progressiv tänkare. Och vad tyckte du om det? Ge oss gärna feedback, använd hashtaggen Arenaklubben och lyssna gärna på tidigare avsnitt som du hittar på iTunes eller på dagensarena.se slash podcast. Tack Jim, tack Maria Georgieva som har hjälpt mig och producerat och tack naturligtvis du som har lyssnat. See you all soon. 